Hello, and welcome to the Kidney Cast. I'm Laura Morris. I'm Ari Deckard. I'm Martha Deckard. And I'm Glenn Deckard. This is our podcast where I usually interview Ari about his experiences with Alport syndrome and his three kidney transplants and all his other health and medical stories. But this week we have Ari's parents, Martha and Glenn, here to talk to us about their experiences. Welcome, you guys. Thank, Thank you. you. So we talked about you guys on the podcast before. We've read emails from both of you, but we wanted to do this episode for a long time to actually get your perspective, both as Ari's parents, as he's dealt with his disease, but also with Martha's own experiences. Um, so the way that I think I'd like to start is, Martha, by asking you to talk about your mother. Okay. The family story about my mother was that as a child, she had a strep infection, so strep throat. And because when she was a child in the 30s, there were not antibiotics available to treat things like strep, instead of just getting over it, it attacked her kidneys. She had a cousin who also had a strep infection who ended up with rheumatic fever in which the instead of attacking her kidneys, it attacked her heart. So that was the family story of the origin of her kidney problems. We know now that while she had a strep infection, that wasn't the origin of her kidney problems. She died when I was six of what was then called Bright's disease, which was, as I understand it, kind of an umbrella term for any kind of nephritis or kidney disease. I was later told that it was glomerulonephritis, a disease of the glomeruli or the filters of the kidneys, and we now know that it was Alport. She was sick on and off throughout my childhood. I remember going to appointments with the urologist. Um, at that time, urologists did all the things that today urologists and nephrologists do, but those are kind of hazy memories because I was very young. A couple of months before she died, I had a kidney infection. I was in kindergarten, and then she died of something with her kidneys. So, of course, I and my six-year-old wisdom thought that I had caused that. We now know, of course, that that wasn't true. Um, yeah, heavy-duty stuff. Um, oh. I don't know what else to say about her. I do know that at one point she was pregnant again, and the fetus was aborted because at that time the... Uh, abortions were legal to save the life of the mother, but that was pretty much it. So I know that that happened because I've been told about it. Beyond that, I don't know a whole lot. I have a few memories of her. Most of them are vague. My oldest memory is going to vote with her, probably in 1952, Aww. which would have been for Adlai Stevenson. But most of my memories are things I've been told or from pictures at this point. But when you lost your mother, it wasn't this idea that this was going to be a genetic thing that was going to play a role in your life, in Ari's life, this was sort of this terrible thing that happened, but then was supposed to be gone. That's right. And in fact, doctors told us, my dad and me, that there was no relationship between what had killed her and the infection that I had had. Although I continued to be followed by a urologist on and off for, for all of my life. And you had some blood in your urine too. Yes, I did. But at that time, they weren't putting those things together the way we now know that they are related. Wow. Okay. So then in a similar vein, and just kind of for context, dad, mm -hmm. 
What was yeah. your impression of kidney disease, dialysis, transplants, like before you had a, a kid who had any of those things? Well, I'm not sure. It was it was this sort of one-off disease thing that had killed uh, Maureen, and um, and Martha seemed to have some bit of that, and that was that. It there wasn't a lot of time or energy really to worry about all the details and implications of it. It was sort of like diabetes when it was first discovered. It's like, well, okay, eat a little less sugar, and if you get dizzy, <laughs> then eat some protein, and you know it's okay, and you're going to die. But you know that's there wasn't a lot of information about it one way or the other. That's true. Yeah. So then what was it like for both of you when Ari, as a really little kid, started showing signs of health problems? Well, <laughs> <laughs> there, there were many Suddenly things came to focus a little better for us. <laughs> when Ari was four-ish, he had a kidney biopsy done up at OHSU. And when I say up at, it's because Oregon Health and Science University is at the top of a hill. So it really is up. At that time, the technology was such that for a young child, they had to do an open biopsy. So an under anesthetic, uh, use a scalpel kind of biopsy because they didn't have the technology to accurately find the kidney doing a needle biopsy on a young child, hmm. even though we begged them to do it that way. <laughs> and part of that was because they said that, you know, we were looking at three or four days of keeping a very active little boy still and in bed after this biopsy. But that's what happened. Um, and this was because of the hematuria. This was not, you know, just you were failing or anything. It was just, well, let's see what this is. Let's see what, the, what we right. can do. When we went to the appointment after the biopsy to get the results, the doctor walked in and said, your son has nephritis and walked out. Oh. <laughs> yes, and I, can, as you can imagine, completely freaked out because what I knew what, at that point was that my mother died of nephritis. Right. And now my child has it. And what does that mean? And no further explanation. He just walked in and walked out. That's nice. I ended, yeah, real nice. <laughs> I ended up calling my doctor to get more information. And there wasn't a lot more information at that point. Did, did he say anything about prognosis at that time? No, no, because he had no information for that. Shortly after that, the pediatric nephrologist changed at OHSU, and we had a, a husband and wife team, and I don't remember their names, but they were very compassionate, and they, they showed us the um, electron microscope pictures that had been taken from the biopsy and explained that you did not have Alport, <laughs> but you had some other amorphous form of kidney disease and needed to be followed. So we followed you. And I remember your pediatrician playing a little game with the lab in his office where he wouldn't tell them anything that it was you. He would just uh, have you pee in a cup and send it off to them, knowing what the results were going to be, to see how quickly they would come running back to tell him that there was blood in your urine. Because <laughs> he knew, but it yeah. was his little joke with them, I guess. Um, 
that was very hard, but all we could do at that point was love you, take care of you, and, and um, just, yeah, take you to your appointments. There, there was no preventive treatment that we knew of. Nobody knew how far this was going to go, what your prognosis was, anything. It was just once or twice a year we took you up to OHSU. You had your regular appointments with your pediatrician. and You got to pee in a, in a, in a jug that you uh, well, mentioned before on another podcast. <laughs> yes. You know, we had other things to deal with. You had tubes in your ears at one point. Mm-hmm. You know, you had allergies. We were dealing with all those things. But kidneys were definitely part of it, but we didn't have a lot of information, and that was as much a reflection of what the medical community knew as anything else. And it's changed and been changing more and more rapidly throughout your life. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, this is the early 80s. It's an identified disease, but it's one that is so rare that at that time, almost no one was doing any research on it. So kind of, of course. Mm-hmm. And the other feeling they got very strongly was that what they did know and the prognosis and the, the things that they were thinking about it, they didn't share with us. It was it was very, well, that's the end. We don't know. And they would be quiet. But there was always a feeling. There was something else you could tell us here, but they did not. And often it felt like they were taken aback by our questions. What? Your parents? And you're asking about your children? It was very, very <laughs> We felt like we were the only ones who ever did that with some of the doctors. You had other pediatric nephrologists who were fantastic up there, who were very much your advocate. I'm thinking about when we were dealing with your headaches in high school. Right. And, you know, we had warring teams, the neurologist versus the nephrologist going on there for a while. But the period of our lives when we felt like we had visited every doctor in Portland and nobody, <laughs> oh, really, we felt like we weren't getting, there's got to be a reason for this, and it's not just, you know, you need to stop this, or you need to, you know, why don't you just shape up and fly right? It's, there was something wrong, and we knew there was, but we couldn't, we couldn't seem to get a straight answer. One of the things I definitely wanted to be sure to ask you guys about is when Ari, when he became hearing impaired, what's that like with a parent and you've got a kid with hearing aids? <laughs> Well, Ari was nine years old, and we were noticing that he wasn't always responding to us. And as a nine-year-old, the nine-year-old, I, I know, shocking, exactly. totally shocking. So, <laughs> us, it was he's nine; he's ignoring his parents. He had had ear infections all his life, and so that was part of our not very surprised response as well, because his ears were plugged up, then he couldn't hear us, and we were mm-hmm. kind of used to that. But it became clear when we went to your third grade parent-teacher conference. And the teacher who was, it was in the same school, so I knew her very well, and she was very, very nervous. And <laughs> she said, well, you know, every time the subject of you came up, it's like, oh, my God, he's bright, he's wonderful, he's this, he's that, he's that, da, da, da. And she said, um, he's uh, not paying attention in class. And we said, oh, oh yeah, well, nothing new at home, you know. And... <laughs> and she said he's misbehaving and he's acting out and I've had to move his chair several times and I'm wondering if he doesn't hear. And it was like a light went on. Really? (laughs) Oh. So? So we 
had your hearing tested and ended up taking you to a wonderful audiologist who immediately got you hearing aids and it made all the difference in the world. And we were totally chagrined, totally, totally <laughs> embarrassed. And wasn't that the time that we went up to? Yes, the World's Fair in Vancouver. And you oh, kept, yeah. and you kept, we'd had to stand in this big long line and you kept turning to us and said, oh, I can hear, I can hear. It's like a bait, tiny chimp. <laughs> and we were just like, I love you, kid, but shut up, would you please? <laughs> I mean, oh. Well, I remember and a the woman lady standing behind, behind oh, us in one of those lines going, oh, holding forth about, oh, this poor child who's wearing hearing aids. And um, isn't it wonderful that his parents have brought him here, even though he's deaf? And, <laughs> and you said something to the effect of, I'm very happy to have my hearing aids because now I can hear everything. And I'm very grateful to my parents. <laughs> <laughs> she was going to, you know, on this whole almost semi-religious rant, it was, oh, it was. Thank you know, you. like thank you, the poor Go deaf ahead. child got brought out <laughs> or something. It was really strange. That you, the, you checked me out of the Institute for the day. Oh, right. We were such humanitarian types. <laughs> anyway, and the other thing that happened was that suddenly we became, if not best friends, at least persons of interest with everybody in the world who had a deaf child. And they all had much, much, much worse situations, like they didn't learn to speak, they were getting special right. therapy, and suddenly we were like, blood brothers because we all had this vastly hearing impaired child. Well, we didn't. <laughs> right. Our child could hear, not without the hearing aids, but he could hear. And he was doing very well in school and he was a normal kid in any other every other way. But suddenly, you know, we were the special ones and we had to go on the special bus and so you know, it was <laughs> <laughs> Well yeah, because because I lost my hearing when I was nine and not two or at birth or something. I constantly surprise people, even still. But you, when I was younger, people, I remember being surprised. Oh, your your language development is so good. You don't <laughs> you don't have an accent. You just speak so clearly, and you seem to do this well. And I was like, yeah. Like as a ten year old, I was like, sure, like what? <laughs> of course. And then as I got older, I realized, oh, because you thought that you know I was actually deaf, and yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, we've always been grateful that if you had to lose your hearing, it was after you knew how to speak. Right. <laughs> I'm not sure you were always grateful, but... Well, no, there is There was that, that time but... at camp that you jumped in with your hearing aids on into the pool, and that was the end of that. <laughs> <laughs> it was quite an expensive little proposition. Well, there. fortunately, no, we had hearing aid insurance. That's right. For our, for our child with hearing aids. And... It got used more than once. <laughs> but I know that I've gone into the shower more than once with my hearing aid on. And, oh, my God, and you have to get it off before it gets wet. But <laughs> not quite the same as jumping into the pool. We also had a, an interesting thing when you were about to go into high school, or maybe you were in high school, and suddenly you were getting um, special ed help. Right, I had an IEP. And they were very, very concerned. Well, what's this child doing? And is there special accommodations? And yeah, the accommodation, he sits in class and attends and takes notes and participates in class. What's the deal? <laughs> and oh, no, no, we've got to have it. Well, does he have a hearing, special hearing device? So the teacher needs to wear a thing. And it was, really? And so 
we had to speak to her. She spoke to you several times, and okay. Well, didn't it. they want to come and, and change the hearing aid batteries? They, at uh, school? they yeah. pull, pull you out of class to change your batteries. Yeah, they, let's let they did. Some, yeah, let's miss some more class. <laughs> so we can change the stupid batteries on your device. That's that's that, brilliant. That's that happened for I think an entire year, like, like once. <laughs> Once a month or something, she tested my hearing aids and put new batteries in them. And I missed part of band for that. <laughs> that was sweet of her. Yeah. Yeah, she was very nice. Actually was, but, but some of these, you know, help isn't help if it interrupts everything. Right. It's like, you know, you ignored us for, I don't know, five years, and now suddenly it's we're right. best friends, and no, no, leave him alone. <laughs> yeah. None of which is to denigrate the special ed services. They're right. absolutely they necessary, the and there it was. And, and we appreciated what they were trying to do. It was just that in your case, they weren't needed. Right. You had worked out how to deal with hearing aid batteries and everything else years before, and you saw an audiologist regularly, and things got adjusted as they needed to be. So, One of the things I want to ask you guys is a, is a general question. Mm-hmm. Because since Ari and I have been doing the podcast, we've had the opportunity to meet either in person or online, lots of people who are now like parents of children who've just been diagnosed with Outport syndrome. And probably like what happened to Ari and what you guys lived through is their worst case scenario for what could happen to their kids. Yeah. Right. And post your boy for Outport. <laughs> so yeah, what I was thinking is what what do you think are the important things that those kinds of people should know or other people should know about your experience as as parents of somebody with a serious chronic illness? Oh, boy. Well, first of all, it doesn't mean it's the end of the world. Depending on the illness, of course, it doesn't necessarily mean your child's going to die tomorrow or next year. And with Alport in particular, things are changing so rapidly that I don't think it's a reason to panic. It's certainly a reason for concern. The two of us have very different reactions to this kind of thing. I remember Glenn's reaction was kind of, oh, my God, my son's going to die. And my reaction <laughs> yes. was, when's the next appointment? What do I have to do? She immediately went into the minutia of appointments and scheduling and carpools and, and all of that. Which I still do. Yes. Yeah. I think it's really important to do as much research as you can, not on Wikipedia. That's the librarian in me. Um, the Alport Syndrome Foundation website is full of really good information and the support group stuff that I've seen on Facebook has been very thoughtful and, and very good information. So I would use those kinds of resources. I think it's important too as a parent to realize that you need to advocate for your child and by advocating I don't mean getting in the way of medical practice. But you do need to ask good questions about what is the prognosis here? How serious is this? Um, what will happen to my son when he's 18? Is he going to fall off into the earth and die? Or is this <laughs> – no, because we didn't – we'll tell you about that later. That was very, very unclear and very scary for us because, oh, no, no, in a few years you'll need a trans – you need a transfer. You need dialysis. No, no uh, tomorrow you need dialysis. And then, well, he is going to need to have a transplant. Oh, uh, last week would have been better. 
So find out what you can, but you still have to love and care for your kid and move on and let him be as normal as, or let let her be as normal as, as it can be. The other thing is, if you have other children, they can't be neglected either. And I can tell you that as hard as we tried to make sure that your sister Sarah was included and not um, not left out, I mean... Oh, we can't do this because of your sick brother. You'll have right. to stay home. You know? <laughs> we right. avoid that as much as possible. It still affects her life, affected and to this day affects her life and her outlook on things because she was part of this whole thing. And it's important to recognize that when one child in a family is chronically ill, it affects everybody. So Yeah, absolutely. So you it's... have to take the other children and their their feelings and their needs into account. Make sure that they're still able to do the things that are important to them, but also to let them be part of what's going on with their uh, sick sibling as much as they need to be or want to be. Also right. not forcing that on them. You said at one point that everybody in the family has Alports, and that really made sense to me because, you know, maybe your cousin doesn't his or her life wasn't affected, but everybody in this, our immediate family surely was. Yeah. And you don't always recognize that that's what it is. You're trying to deal with everything and mm -hmm. you've got to include everybody in that, that process. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So to, to summarize, you need to educate <laughs> yourself and you need to be proactive for your child, but you also can't let the chronic disease be your life. And by that, I mean you still need to do other things as a parent and as a family that aren't centered around the disease. You need to take family trips if you can. You need to take your kids to the zoo, to the museum, do all the fun things that they and you want to do when you can. Make sure that, you know, everyday life continues. It doesn't stop because your child has blood and protein in his urine or her urine. You may have to adjust diets. You may have to be giving pills, but none of that's the end of the world. Life continues and you need to continue to be part of the community and the world and, and your family. Not, your yes. Family. And your family. And Ari, I remember you saying you didn't want to be kidney boy. No. <laughs> that's the only thing about you or hearing aid boy. Right. And that's, the point I'm trying to make is that you are more than your disease. That's a part of you, but it's not everything. And you have to honor the whole person and the whole family. Well, that was something that was actually, I didn't get my full head around it until we started doing the podcast. We sat down to do, I think the second episode, we were talking about Ari's childhood. And I was asking, so when did you actually think about yourself as a person who was disabled or with a chronic disease? <laughs> and I did not realize how late in time that truly was. You know, he talked about, oh, you know, I had all these appointments and we had all these urine collections and then I lost a lot of my hearing and then this and then this. And all of that was way before the point where he thought of himself as an ill person. And and I think a lot of that probably comes into the parenting angle about you guys insulating him a lot from feeling like his disease was this huge part of his life. Well, yeah, I, I felt very proud of us when I heard that in the podcast. Oh, good. <laughs> that, that we had managed to handle that in a way that it wasn't, oh, you poor baby, you have to do this thing. It was just, this is what we're doing today. And I don't think 
I mean, in the back of our heads, there was this idea that our child has this chronic disease. But again, we didn't want that to be the focus of our lives all the time. It had to be at times. I, I don't mean that we ignored it because we never ignored it. But we had another child. We had other our jobs. Yeah. We have other family members. And having a, a chronic disease doesn't mean you go hide in your bedroom for the rest of your life and you don't engage with the world. It's like I said before, it's just, it's a part of your life. It may be a dominant part at certain times when you're feeling really terrible or you're having surgery and things like that. But, you know, I don't meet people now and, you know, hi, I'm Martha. I had a, a kidney transplant. That's not the first thing out of my mouth. And there are people I engage with all the time who don't even know that about me. It's not the most important thing about me. It comes up when I'm running around saying, oh, no, it's 9 o'clock. I have to take my pills. Where's my purse? Or something like that. Um, or no, I'm not, I can't eat, you know, the sushi and here's why, because people think I'm weird that I'm not eating sushi. But other than that, you know, yes, it's important. It's something that I deal with every day, but the whole world doesn't have to know. The other thing about our parents' role, we would see friends, you know, once or twice a year. And the first thing out of their mouth was, how's Ari? Is he all right? And yeah, he's fine. That was something... Well, we still do that because the, we see these people, you know, once a year or so, and that's the first thing they ask about. And we always try to reassure them that everything's fine. You're happy. You're employed. You're married. You're, you know, in love with your life and moving on. And I think that's important for that's a kind of a what interference kind of thing that that parents or the family. I mean, I'm sure your sister has to do that too. Uh, has that sort of role to say. No, not the most important thing in his life. And besides that, he's fine and happy and employed and plugged in and, you know, forget it. <laughs> yeah, right. mm -hmm. Another part of that is that your chronic disease, my chronic disease, whatever, is, is, was just part of our daily life. I've heard people who have severely, severely disabled children talk about a new normal, that yeah. dealing with this thing day to day that's normal for us, and that's our life. We don't think of ourselves as not normal. This is just what we do. And I think it's fair to say that that's how we approached it as well. And the only time it bothered me was when people would say something like, oh, you poor dears, how do you deal with this? <laughs> Isn't yeah. this hard? That's when it was hard, was when people asked if it was hard. Because Otherwise, it was, but you just don't, you can't think of it that way. You just can't live your life that it way. It has to be, this is our life, and we're going to make it work. If we have to concentrate on monthly doctor appointments and pills every day, that's fine. We can do that. So much of, of your illness was cyclical. There would be Okay, there were the, the regularly scheduled appointments and so on, but then you would be especially ill. And so we're going to get through this part right now and figure out what's wrong. And then we're going to move on. Oh, well, then a couple months later, oh, well, there's this thing. So it wasn't like, oh, my God, it's still happening. It's It was, this is the next thing we have to do. And right now we have a lot of... Uh, going to go to the hospital now we're going to find out things we're going to see what we can do and we have to listen to the doctor and do our stuff and then go on 
it's not, you know, it's not an accumulative thing. And then this happened and then this happened. No, it's one foot in front of the other. And yeah. <laughs> right. sometimes it's just like, okay, point me in the right direction. I don't know which end is up or where I'm going, but point me in the right direction. I'll get there and we'll take care of things. Keep calm and carry on. Well, kind of. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and well, we didn't always. We didn't always, but. And, you know, sure. bring a book wherever you go. <laughs> so that <laughs> in that doctor's office again, you have And it always runs late, don't you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I've talked about what it was like for me as, you know, as I got sicker in junior high and high school. But I, I know that that experience was really different for you. So can you please talk about what it was like for you when I started complaining about headaches and missing more and more school? One of the hardest things for me during this whole process was I didn't have a context for what your illness was or know what the prognosis was or that, oh, gee, people with outwards get headaches. They lose their hearing. This happens. That happens. And I had no, I really didn't understand what the, what the deal was. And when you started missing school okay okay you got a headache fine but okay but but can't you just pull through this can't you just power through and and deal with it later well no you couldn't okay well uh you've been home every day for you know a week or so and you can't go to the main event school which for teachers so school is very important yeah uh, but you're going to the you're going to your band rehearsal and it's loud banging noises and you have a headache and really i mean how do how do you go to the extracurricular things and not to the main events even well okay so cut pe and math but go to english or go to history or go to something <laughs> who's what how i did not understand that at all and one of the things that it took me a very, and I know that you know this, but it took me such a long time to get to get around this was that I needed to to learn to trust you. And you said, but they're depending on me in band. And I'm thinking, honey, the world is depending on you to learn how to read, to learn how to figure. You've got to get the diploma of the thing. You know, you've got to have <laughs> that says you did it or you'll never get a job in America. So I was looking at this in a in a whole a whole different way and sort of a global way and at, as soon as I started trusting that you really knew what you could do and what was going to work for you it put a whole lot less anxiety on me and I'm sure I made your life easier because I wasn't always railing <laughs> at you about oh my god you missed another thing and how are you ever going to live and da 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 so part of it was trusting you and trusting and letting go of what my agenda was or what what I knew mm -hmm. to be correct about the world. That was a very difficult period of time for all of us, yeah. including I mean, all four of us in this house. As your dad said, it's very hard. It's very, first of all, it's very hard to see your child in that much pain. But also, I don't think we understood how much pain you were in, mm. that you were throwing up as much as you were, that, that really couldn't make it through the day. Because what we saw was a teenager sleeping late. <laughs> Not an unusual thing. And, and when we engaged you about it, then you would argue. And, okay, so what part of this is actual argument or is, uh, part of this is just teenage angst and, you know, I hate my parents and go away. So, <laughs> right. so it, 
it was very, 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 very difficult for us to, to find the path through all this, and it took us a long time. Right, and, you know, I'm sure you remember, we went to multiple doctors about the headaches. We went to the pediatric neurologist, who was a world expert in all kinds of horrible brain things and chill, <laughs> but who decided that you were faking. And that I remember the only him one either. coming into the hospital room after the test that showed that you didn't have migraines and yelling at you. He got right in your face in that bed and said, <laughs> you're going to stop faking. You are going to go back to school. You're going to quit all of your extracurricular activities and you are going to do your homework. And as he walked out, you sat there saying, I guess I have to call Mr. A, the conductor of Portland Youth Philharmonic. And when he left the room, we both turned to you without even talking to each other and said, no, you are not quit quitting PYP. You are not quitting band. Yeah, that would quit your life. There's no, you're not doing it. You are going to get to school whenever you can. But I, I think that was a real turning point for us when we saw him turn on you that way because you didn't meet his expectations. Well, for a couple of years before that, we had been saying essentially the same thing. And then we, and we knew that it didn't work. We knew it wasn't right. <laughs> and then the doctor did it. It was like, wait a minute, this is vindication, but he's wrong. <laughs> we we was, understood uh, where the doctor was coming from, which is where we started too. You go to school. If you can't do anything else, you at least go to school. Or part of school. Right. But we understood things about you that that doctor did not. And we recognized that you weren't faking. We knew that before that test. But to have a doctor come in and do that to you, which I think was totally inappropriate, just flipped the switch in ways that hadn't happened before. And we said, no, you're yeah. continuing with all of those things and we will support you to get through this as best we can. And that same thing happened that summer that that he he failed math and then he was getting special tutoring from the math teacher and the math right. teacher figured that you were you were a screw up somehow and so <laughs> completely cut you off the knees and okay that wasn't right. <laughs> right. So so then we got your private tutor but found a tutor and already passed the class. Um I wanted to to follow up two things. <laughs> Um, and you sort of answered the second one. But first of all, I know I've said this before, but I want to say again, I really, it's always meant a lot to me that you backed me up that way. You know, that the course of my life has followed the extracurriculars. <laughs> um, you know, I, I do like reading. I do like math, even though I don't use it very often. And I, I like social studies and all the, the classic so-called core classes. But I'm a musician and a music teacher because I was able to keep doing those things. And the two of you made that possible. The other thing that I wanted to ask, and you, you kind of answered this already, is you said that it was really difficult to wrap your head around all these things that were happening and try to figure out, you know, Dad, you were talking about learning to trust me. And was it just that one event where Dr. Full of himself came in and yelled at me? Or was it like, what made that easier? What made that happen? What how did you navigate that? I think it was a process over time. You know, like I mentioned previously, we went to him. We went to the pain clinic where it seemed like they almost killed you during <laughs> one test. Um, the sinus doctor was the same way. Well, it's not my right. fault. He's got this other thing. It's not me. Right. But over time, 
we we just saw that okay they don't know what it is either but clearly you're in pain and yelling at you to get out of bed isn't working so we need to look at and it was really us. destroying us i mean yes we had a horrible relationship then it um, was bad for everybody to handle it as if you were being a bad kid because you weren't but and, we didn't understand and we didn't that it, we never thought you were a bad kid i don't no. want to say that <laughs> when you see your child not doing the one thing that you think is most important for him to be doing at that point in his life it's very difficult and it's hard not to be the parent who yells and insists and demands yeah and you know in most cases if we said no this is wrong you have to do it this way you were compliant with those things now of course you were a teenager at this point and so definition <laughs> less compliant this went on long enough that we were able to say wait a minute this isn't just teenage defiance there's something else going on and we need to listen and pay attention and try to understand what's really going on you know we said before i said before that we had gone to every uh doctor in portland to, to figure out about your headache and i that's probably not true but it felt like <laughs> and it, it felt like if there was somebody who was burning chicken feathers and reading cow entrails and said <laughs> picture head we probably would have gone to see them we ended up the last the, the people who helped you finally he <laughs> this was so weird he said does your hair hurt and i thought oh christ now we're in for the soup this is really are, <laughs> yeah we totally did excuse me hair hurt and then you said yes and <sighs> You came out of there and you said, that's the first person who's listened to me or heard me. Um, and I had to trust you. I had to know that that was, that your hair hurt by God. Okay, your hair hurt. So what does that mean medically? I mean, how do you fix that? Get a haircut. I mean, I just, I had no idea. <laughs> I did not understand what the man said and I didn't understand which, it was just like, okay, chicken entrails, here we are, that's it. But that's what made sense to you and that's what he was able to treat okay your hair hurts i have to trust you because i'm not there so yeah to advance the story a bit to, you yes. know kind of getting your perspective that build up to ari's transplant that like oh someday maybe to now because ari talked about that it was like flipping kind of a switch there wasn't a progression it was sort right. of someday 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 now and mm -hmm. what was that like on the other side for you Oh my God. Well, we had been um, gone over spring break. We had taken Sarah, Ari's sister, to look at colleges um, because it was her junior year mm -hmm. of high school. Ari was going to Portland State at that point. And so that's the end of March. When we came back, we had a phone call from our nephrologist's office asking if we had noticed anything different in Ari's behavior in his <laughs> affect in the way he responded in conversation that kind of thing um, because Ari had had an appointment with them while we were gone and they had noticed this and we started thinking about it and yes he seemed spacey mm -hmm. um, yeah, not as focused as normal and that had really changed just in that week that we were gone yeah. so you know, we reported that, and of course they were doing labs, and that was the point at which they said, okay, his kidney function had gone, had plummeted, 
And now we needed to be looking at dialysis and transplants. So that was at the beginning of April in 1996. At that point, of course, in our family, uh, with our greater family, not just our immediate family, we have an agreement that if there's a medical thing going on, we share. We tell people. So it's not a shock when suddenly somebody's having some major procedure or whatever. So, of course, we shared that this was happening. And within a week, we had seven members of our family who offered a kidney to Ari. Now, of course, we were in shock, but as usual, Glenn was saying, oh my God, my child's going to die. And I was saying, what do we need to do next? Um, so and between we us, we cover everything. Um, truly, truly just trying to get through the day. Horrible. Yes. Um, and I don't think I need to repeat the whole story of all of that, but it was a shock. It was very quick. It was very intense. I had family members calling me at work to say why they should be the one to donate a kidney to Ari and, and you know not all those not other subtle, people. They're not subtle, uh, you know, <laughs> thought. They're, they were, no, no, it's me. It's now just get out of my way and let me, here it is, you know. Oh, yeah. I'm in the middle of a class of okay. 30 first graders who want to check out their books. and <laughs> And a phone call comes from a brother or a parent of mine or whoever with, no, no, you have to listen now. This is why I should be the one. Right. The first thing that happened be before all those phone calls okay. was I had a call from the pre-transplant coordinator. And I happened to be in the office at the school I was working at and had to stand there in the office for 20 minutes talking to her um, because they because were of the way the phones, you, had, you were right. connected to the I office. was connected to the wire standing there. I had to explain to her that, no, I couldn't be. I was not a potential donor because my kidney function at that point was 50%, which was fine. I was fine, but nobody was going to take my kidney with that kind of kidney function. And I told her potential people, gave her the history I could off the top of my head, that kind of thing. And we proceeded from there. We were so grateful that there were potential treatments which hadn't existed this was uh, 96 40 years before when my mother died that you know i don't think we spent a lot of time bemoaning the fact that you were going to have to start dialysis or have a transplant it was more oh my god there's help there's, there, there's, there's a something way out. that there's, can be done yeah. and let's make it happen so you just mentioned your own kidney function and that was the next thing I wanted to ask was about your experience with Alports and the, your own transplant. And especially that shift because you go from being a, a caretaker of someone with Alports to the Alport patient yourself. Right. That was weird. You know, by the <laughs> time, you know, Ari had had two transplants here in Portland and two failed transplants here in Portland when our nephrologist told me, uh, that I would be fine for the summer. And that was 2007. I had been complaining all spring, apparently, to my mother that I was really tired. And you she, were and really finally, tired. she said, every time I talk to you, you tell me you're really tired. Have you told the doctor that? Well, no. You know, I was pretty much living on coffee at that point. <laughs> so I told the doctor, and it turned out that I was so anemic that if they didn't do something quickly, I was going to need a blood transfusion. And that was April-ish. And the reason that's important is that Ari's sister Sarah was getting married in June. So I needed to feel well enough to deal with all of that stuff. 
So I started having um, iron infusions, which worked remarkably well, and I was feeling much better. And at that point, our nephrologist said, well, you'll be fine through the, for all your summer activities. And that seemed really weird, but he wouldn't explain anything further, even when I asked. Okay, so we had the wedding. Glenn and I went to Hawaii for three or four weeks after that. And in August, our nephrologist said that I needed to start dialysis, that I would need to start by Christmas. I didn't have to start right away, but by Christmas, I was going to need to be on dialysis. Like Ari, really the only thing wrong with me was my kidneys. Yeah, I had a hearing aid and I would get ear infections and things, but I was basically healthy except for my kidney function. So suddenly I was the patient, and as weird as that was, once again, it was, okay, how do we make things work? And looking at how things worked in my high school library, probably in terms of me missing work, the best time to do it would be right at the beginning of the school year. The first week or so of school, my library was being used for testing and evaluating ESL students and new students to the school. And the first couple of weeks, not much happened in terms of student interaction. So I started dialysis the first day of school in September. I missed the first three weeks of the school year, partly because I needed to figure out how to manage a dialysis diet and getting to dialysis and all of that stuff and still be working. And I could have gone back to work a week earlier, but that third week was really when I figured out how to manage everything. And the first couple of weeks, I wasn't supposed to drive, so people were having to drive me to and from dialysis. And that third week, then I was figuring out again that I could do all of that. Which was pretty impressive, because dialysis takes up a lot, a lot of time and energy. And a lot of energy. So Um, she was still working in. So then I went back to work. It wasn't easy, and it was definitely not my best year of teaching. But because I was able to do dialysis after school, I was able to do it. I would go to work, leave the school, and on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I would go straight to the dialysis center, which was between our house and the school. And then about 9 o'clock at night, 9, 9.30, I would head home, and we would have dinner, and I would collapse into bed. It was a weird transition. Of course, Ari was on dialysis at that time, too. I had somebody to talk to about it who understood what I was going through in a way that nobody else did, which was cool. But it still was it was a difficult year. At Thanksgiving, my brother Raymond called and said he had decided that he wanted to offer me a kidney. And at that point, he was really the only person in the family who could because dad and my brother Michael had already given you, Ari, their a kidney each, so they didn't have any more to donate. Right. So, so it was up to Raymond. And then he started the testing. And, you know, I'm incredibly grateful to him to this day. In fact, he took time off from work and flew to Portland to get the testing done more quickly because they could do all the tests in a couple of days here where if he were long distance, they would have to wait for the results of one test before doing the next one. So he was willing to do that. And in July, we had our surgery. And you guys were there for that. So the roles were flipped. (laughs) The whole experience was, it was eye-opening. I remember the first day I walked into that, to the dialysis center. Because the first week of dialysis, you're in the hospital where they 
kind of work out all the kinks of your uh, dialysis prescription. Right. But I walked into the dialysis center, into the room where the machines were, and I saw all these really, really sick people, people with open wounds and amputations and bad coloring and just clearly very ill. Wow. And I stood there thinking, I don't belong here. Of course, I did. But, but there's a spectrum and you were but, on the Right, there's <laughs> a spectrum end. and I was on the healthy end of it. But it was just, it was a real shock to, to be part of that group. It's like, I'm not kidney kid either, except I am. And oh my God, <laughs> I quickly obviously got over that. I had to get over it to make it work. It was a real eye opener to the world of sick people in a way that I hadn't seen before, even with all the experience of having a child with a chronic disease, to suddenly be the person who is and be the person who's being treated is, it's just a, a, a total flip of the, the mindset. I remember I thank the dialysis techs every night when I left, and they would be surprised that I thanked them. And I'm standing there thinking, you know, you're keeping me alive. <laughs> Hello. Of course I'm thanking you. It's an experience unlike any other I've ever had to be a patient in that kind of situation. And I am eternally grateful to Raymond that I don't have to do that anymore. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know what will happen if I ever have to go back to that. I think it will be very hard. I'll do it because I want to stay alive. But... <laughs> It's not easy, and life is not easy when you're on dialysis. You just don't have the energy that you're used to having, and your diet is severely restricted. And it's much harder to do the things you want to do. We still went to plays, went to movies, did those kinds of things. We didn't travel at all that year, um, and we did go to a wedding in the Bay Area, but we arranged. we were able to go because it was between dialysis treatments. We left Sunday morning and we came back on Monday and I think the wedding was Sunday evening, so we were able to do it. But you've talked a lot about how you're able to do things on dialysis and that's true, uh, but it takes more planning. Absolutely, it, yeah. It sure does. I wanted to say that you're talking about starting that journey and, and doing all of those things and how the transition was difficult. But I also wanted to give you a lot of credit because in the time since then, you've become absolutely an expert in your own right. You've done uh, presentations and education of your own or educating of your own for a lot of people about dialysis, about Alport syndrome, about kidney disease. And I've, I've found that very impressive and awesome. Oh, well, thank you. I don't know that I would call myself an expert, but certainly an, an educated patient. Yeah. And I'm going to put a plug in here for Donate Life Northwest, which is the organization that I volunteer with. Their goal is to get people registered to be organ and tissue donors, and they are now doing more work with living donation as well as with deceased donations. But through that organization, I've made many presentations to high school students and college students about organ and tissue donation in general and our story in particular. And it's very interesting to make those presentations and see who, who knows anything about 
transplant in the first place, and the questions that students ask are always very good. They're very interested. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, been my experience as well. Yeah. So thank you for the compliment. I appreciate it. <laughs> of course. Uh, and so then, Dad, you made a transition from being the parent of a child and then, you know, young adult, adult who was dealing with all of this stuff to being the spouse of somebody who was dealing with dialysis and transplant. So what was that like for you? It was a difficult transition for me too. I needed to be there for her appointments and I was transported at the beginning. Um, <laughs> well, intermittently too, during the, the rest of the year. Um, she was, I don't want to say out of it, but not, she wasn't, ha wasn't able to do her regular thing. So I took over most of the cleaning and the housework and cooking and, as I say, transport. So my life was, was different. I was in service to the disease, perhaps you could say. I hear and, you, man. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's, it's um, yeah, it was, it was a, a difficult year. And also, it affected our social life because... What social life? We didn't have any. <laughs> I dialyzed on Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday evenings. So those evenings when we would normally be together, and certainly since we were working on a Saturday night, that might be a time when we would go out to dinner with friends or go to someone's house or whatever. We couldn't. Yeah. So it, it made severe inroads into that kind of social interaction for that year. Things things did get to better as the year went on, but it was it was um, it was a, a difficult time. Okay, so it looks like we're kind of running into probably a good stopping point. I think I'm going to wrap up with actually two final questions. So the first one is um, Ari, how are you feeling? Oh, I'm sick. Yeah, I'm feeling a little bit better today, but we've had to stop this recording a couple times so I could cough. I'm sick and I'm stuffed up. Not doing awesome, but I'm not doing horrible either. Uh, it's been a long, busy week at work. It's going to be another one this week, which doesn't help when you're sick. But um, thanks to the magic of Facebook memories, I realized that this is exactly the same week when I was sick last year too. So that's, I guess, comforting <laughs> in terms of pattern. But yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm sick, but I'm not like sicky sick. And Martha, how are you feeling this week? I feel well. Thank you. Oh, good. Yes, I am not sick, which is nice. Um, I was sick, what, two months ago, ended up with pneumonia, which was weird. But since then, I have been fine. And it's been very unusual for you to be sick. Right. Thanks to the magic of Purell, <laughs> I was working after my transplant. Well, I made some choices that have helped with my health. There are programs that I would dearly love to participate in, like the SMART program, Start Making a Reader Today, where you read with children in elementary schools. But I have chosen not to do those programs because even more so than a middle school or a high school. They're walking Petri dishes. They, they are. Elementary schools <laughs> are giant Petri dishes for everything. And rather than expose myself to all of that weekly, I do other things to volunteer so that I'm not exposed to coughing, sneezing kids all the time. And that's worked, right? For now, at least, I am healthy. And I had labs this week, and they were the best ever. Yeah, yeah my creatinine was 
0.95. Wow. Uh-huh. So I'm feeling all proud. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, doing well. Thank you. I'm so glad. And thank you, you guys, for taking the time to talk with us. You're very welcome. You're very welcome. We're pleased to do it. And I want to thank everyone for listening to the KidneyCast. If you guys have questions for us, it's kidneycast at gmail.com. All of the episodes are available on iTunes and Stitcher and my website, lauramorris.com, L-A-R-R-A-M-O-R-R-I-S.com. We're also on Twitter at KidneyCast or Facebook.com slash KidneyCast. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. <laughs>